Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. We have a philosophy that you can have a great leadership team and a mediocre product, or you've got a mediocre leadership team and a great product. We would always look more strongly at the great leadership team with the mediocre product because you can always make the product better. You can't make the leadership team better. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 84. This episode is sponsored by the Impactful Business Leadership Mastermind. The mastermind brings together hungry entrepreneurs and business owners who want to scale their business, get their toughest problems solved, learn best practices, and build their networks. Learn more at impactfulcoaching.com forward slash BLM. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Labe Bolo. Labe is a partner at Greyhawk Capital, Arizona's largest venture capital firm with a focus on investment in early growth stage software companies. Labe also serves as president of the Arizona-Israel Technology Alliance, overseeing the facilitation of growth and bilateral trade between the technology communities of Arizona and Israel. With over a decade of experience in the area of new business development, startups, marketing, funding acquisition, and general operations management, Labe has been instrumental in building organizations from the ground up. Labe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Good morning, Natalia. Great to be here. Yeah, it really is a pleasure. Um, and I know that we've been connected by a good friend of mine, Jason Pfeffer, who I know you've known for much longer than I have, a previous guest on Lead to Succeed. So I thank him for making the connection, and I'm really excited to talk with you. And I want to, you know, everybody's got their thing. Everybody, you know, kind of finds their audience, finds who it is that they want to work with, they want to support so I'm just curious, what is it that, that drove you to choose early growth stage software companies in particular for your investment focus? Yeah, thanks, Neftali. So maybe, maybe I'll backtrack a little bit to, um, you know, I'm a passionate Zionist, uh, love Israel. I uh, lived there for about seven years. And obviously Israel is, is a startup nation and, uh, yeah. it, you know, has, has the highest amount of, uh, of investment per capita in the world with early stage and, and growth stage um, software companies. And, um, you know, I, I felt that there is an opportunity. There's many great causes out there that are supporting different initiatives in Israel. It could be advocacy. Um, it could be nonprofits doing things. And I realized there was an opportunity where people wanted to be involved in what, you know, what I would coin as um, economic Zionism. How can they get involved with something that's a little different and can, they can benefit from it as well? Um, and so um, I started the nonprofit, the Arizona Israel Technology Alliance, which was just focused on assisting Israeli companies and Arizona companies, which is where I'm based, um, on finding those coll uh, collaborative opportunities and seeing a lot of early stage companies, both in Arizona and in Israel. I, I went out and started my own venture capital fund called Arad's Partners, which was focused on funding early stage um, um, software companies. And that we, we would call that pre-seed and seed stage. And after about three months of doing that, my attorney was also an attorney of Greyhawk Capital, introduced me to them. 
uh, we worked for a number of months together and then they asked me to join. So, you know, my passion is Israel. I, um, technology is really the driver of innovation uh, in, in the world. And that's how, uh, you know, I ended up with, uh, with Grail Capital. Interesting. So before I dive deeper, first of all, it's so interesting because the person who was on uh, the episode before this episode um, is Hillel Fold, who is well, well known in the area of not only Israeli tech, he talked about startup nation. I think he's got a different term for it because he's talking about how we're, you know, that much farther scale up, along, if you will. Scale up nation. Scale up nation. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you guys are talking, you guys are talking the language better than me. Anyway. So, um, you know, I, I heard the piece on passion. I love the story, by the way. I love how, you know, starting with your passion, if you will, kind of brought you to where you are. And that's always very exciting when you can kind of build from the, the values out, you know, take your passion, build it and develop it. And then new opportunities come together from people who are like-minded, who see things similarly to you and really want to support you as well as you them. So I, I'm just curious, Leigh, because, you know, you hear different things about follow your passion you know, get excited about something and then do it. And Jason, actually, now that I think about it, he actually said that that's a bad idea, right? Don't follow your passion. He had his whole whole theory as to why that wouldn't work. So I'm just curious. I, I love mixing it up a little bit amongst friends in particular. I'm curious to take get your take on, you know, this whole idea of kind of starting with the passion, starting with purpose and going that direction. And would you advise that to most people or did you happen to just quote luck out uh, in this particular case? Yeah, so I'll give you maybe some back-end story that you probably are not familiar with. Um, I, I heard Jason's segment, uh, that okay. two-minute clip that you have, yeah. and I gave, him a, I gave him a call, and I said, Jason, <laughs> we, 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 we need to talk over here. And, you know, I, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, you know, I, I believe that when a person is going on their career, uh, I, I do, a, I'd say, a fair amount of uh, just advising people in terms of, you know, what they'd like to do with their lives. You know, I believe there's, there's, there's three, uh, three criteria. Number one is, does that job, does it provide a sustainable income uh, to be able to meet your, your, your life needs? Uh, second one, are you utilizing, uh, are you, sorry, are you getting a, a lot of job satisfaction? Are you going to go into something that you're going to come out of there every day and you're not going to feel good about it? Don't go into whatever the X is. Um, and the third one is having a passion, getting a lot of people, getting a lot of, 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 of job satisfaction. Um, uh, sorry, utilizing, sorry, let me go back. First one is going to be, um, does it meet financial needs? Second one is, are you utilizing the qualities that you have that is unique to you to be able to come out as, um, you know, contributing to that organization, whatever you're doing? And the third one, does it give you job satisfaction? Um, which really comes around, you know, that passion aspect of it. And number one and number two, I, I think many people can find, right? Can you find the financial needs? Second, are you utilizing those, um, are you utilizing those needs that you have? If you find one and two, that is a good option. Ultimately, if you can find number three to follow that passion, that's the ultimate. But there's many people that are able to utilize that passion of theirs beyond just the jobs that they have. So if you think about communal activity, if you think about you know, whether it's coaching a soccer game or whatever it is. I, I believe that ha having passion about something and where you are vested in really comes out on a more holistic aspect as being able to have a lot more productivity, being feeling good about your job um, and being able to continue that journey that you're going on. So I, you know, I spoke today to, to Jason about that and he says, you know, good, good thoughts. And um, he didn't say agree or disagree, but he said valid. 
I guess I'm going to have to record one with both of you guys on together. We'll have to duke it out. Uh, but in the meantime, now that was a great answer and I love it. Uh, the couple of things that I, that I distilled from what you said that I'd like to go into a little bit more if I could. Uh, you talked about how you advise people. I'm not sure if that's a consultative role or if that's voluntary, but I'm, I'm just curious to know, Labe, your take on the idea of paying it forward. You know, what is it that you do? What is it that you see other leaders do where, you know, they, they want to contribute, they want to be able to help others get to where they are, if not even exceed where they've reached. Um, what is your, what's your process? What are your thoughts on that? So, um, no, I, I don't consult at all. I mean, these are more advisory. I have about maybe about 250 resumes in my, uh, in one of my folders. Uh, I, I think that helping people with uh, their careers and their jobs is, is the ultimate form of charity. Um, and um, I, I think it's fundamental to a person's uh, development to be able to uh, share what network that they have and the abilities that they have. Obviously, unless it's, you know, that's what their career and their job is. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's really, it's very, I should say, selfishly self-gratifying to be able to help someone out. Um, and I think on an altruistic level, there's a lot to be said for people that do pay it forward. Um, you know, I think the majority of people are not handed things on a, on a silver platter and they need to be able to work incredibly hard. But that hard work, I would say, almost all of the time is assisted by people around them or people that they know. In a person going on their own journey and not being able to capitalize on and, and welcome the support around them, then it's gonna be much harder to do. Um, so having surrounding yourself with the right people, you know that you have a lot more ability to be able to, to go and take that life journey on the career side. Um, and ultimately, if you're being helped by people, being able to assist it to other people, um, I think it's just the menschlichtic, uh, you know, part of it. And, um, and I'm, I'm a big believer in being able to dedicate a certain amount of time to, you can call it communal work or being able to help others. I love it. Yeah, I, I would want to go deeper. I just know that we have so many other things to talk about, but I'm just going to re reiterate or restate a couple of points that I think are very valuable. You know, there's this research that they've been doing over at Harvard for a really long time, studying men and studying their happiness. And a lot of the people that they started studying decades ago are no longer are no longer living. But what they found consistently is that people who have strong relationships with others and are involved in giving um, are the happiest, are the ones who really feel most satisfied. You talked earlier about finding your passion. You know, it, you might have viewed it as a bit of a cherry on the top, but still wherever you can intersect your work with your passion. And if you can't, then at least find opportunities, gratifying opportunities elsewhere where you're contributing. So you know, we, we live in a society where I think people are becoming more and more sensitive to this, that it's not just about the work. And of course, we want to make money, but we want to be able to live and improve the quality of people's lives around us. And simultaneously, we know that when we give to others, that's what really, in many cases, makes us feel most fulfilled. So just a, a reinforcement, if you will, a reminder to myself and anyone else who's listening that yeah, we want to work hard and we want to we want to achieve, but let's always think about how are we improving the lives of others? How are we, even with our products or services, how do they help the end user? How do they make somebody else's life better? And if we do that, it just, it, it creates much more excitement, passion, motivation around our work, which of course keeps us going. So, uh, I mean, that, that so really, yeah. yeah, that really, yeah, let me jump in, uh, uh, Nafali, that really comes to an aspect. I mean, in, in most companies now, you have a customer success teams how is the how is the company making 
their, their, their uh, customer really successful. And the amount of capital and dedication put onto customer success teams uh, really, I think, magnifies that is how can you make your customers really as best as possible, that they're maximizing what you have to offer them. So I think looking at it on a personal level, making sure that people are around you and contributing, and also in the, on the work side level as well, the amount of dedication to them uh, it re- you know, is, is magnified that you've got so much on the corporate side being dedicated towards that. I love it. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, this is always interesting to me. You know, you're, you're obviously very involved in investments. So with investments, there's the product, there's the service, there's the balance sheet, there's all that stuff. And then there's the people, right? You know, the people who are, you're investing in the team. So I'm curious to know what are some of the, without getting overly technical and very, very, let's call it uh, industry specific, what would be some useful characteristics both in looking at a potential investment on the business side of it, as well as the people behind it that you'd be looking for that would help you make the right decision on where to invest your time and your money? So we have a philosophy that you can have a great leadership team and a mediocre product, or you've got a mediocre leadership team and a great product. We would always look more strongly at the great leadership team with the mediocre product because you can always make the product better. You can't make the leadership team better. So that's, uh, you know, from a, a, a philosophical perspective of investment, we need people and looking for teams and management um, that are stand-up people. Um, you know, ultimately, we, we're looking for people who do have a track record. We do invest in first-time CEOs as well. Um, generally, those CEOs have surrounded themselves on the management side with people who have um, more experience than, than they have. Uh, but ultimately, we're looking for, we always do customer references. We always do, um, we do refer- personal references in understanding, are these people the types of people that we want to work with? Are they straight, transparent, um, and are they you know, good relationship people? And I think that's really when it comes to the personality traits. That's really what we're looking for. Yeah, I love it because uh, I, I, I speak about leadership quite a bit. Um, and I know that, for example, I've often referenced John Maxwell. He talks about how when you have a, uh, let's call it an imbalance between the message, the leader and the leader's message. So if people are supportive of the leader, you can always get another message. You can always get another direction. You can always re, re, recalibrate, so to speak. But if you can't, if people won't get behind their leader, if the leader doesn't inspire them, if the leader doesn't support them, if they don't feel valued and validated by the leader of the leadership team, very little positive will emerge because we always see th- things through that lens, right? It's the leadership first. So while leaders, I do, I do disagree maybe a little bit, I do believe leadership can be developed. I think leaders can be developed, but I agree with you fundamentally. It's certainly a lot easier to work with people who have it, you know, who get what leadership is really all about, who put others first and those kinds of things, rather than trying to recreate their leadership mm-hmm. orientation and kind of, and, and build it out from there. But there's one other thing that you said, and I'd like to unpack it just a little bit more, is the experienced team, right? You talked about leaders who find people that are more experienced than them and surround them with them, which is awesome. Because we don't know everything. I know I listen to Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich a lot. He talked about Henry Ford and Albert uh, and uh, Thomas Edison and some of these others who, who were not educated people. 
did not go through grade school all the way, did not have advanced degrees, but they understood how to leverage the wisdom and the talent of other people to help them build great businesses, great products, et cetera. So I'm curious to get your take on that. What is, what is the reason you think that this is so critical and what may be an example of where that, that experience has helped somebody who may not have had it for him or herself take that next level? So on an investment side, you're always looking to be able to mitigate risk. And when you have someone who's done it before and they've served in specific leadership positions and they've been able to build teams and they've been able to increase revenue, then you have a track record to be, to be able to validate and say, this person has done it before. Uh, whereas someone who the first time, there's still that unknown. So we're looking at it primarily from a mitigation of risk and um, not we've had some very successful first-time CEOs, but they've done they've done a great job in being able to build teams around them, and that gives us a lot of confidence as well. If there was you know a CEO that uh, had not done it before and does not have a strong uh, a strong team around them, then that would be a little bit more of a concern to us, and we would need to be, need to be able to justify an investment in them. But really, it comes down to the mitigation of risk. And that's really, we, we look at many different aspects of how are we mitigating risk from an investment perspective. Sure. So what would be an example of where you saw that the, the young CEO wanted to do X without getting overly specific and of course, keeping uh, you know, all identities confidential, but an, an example of a kind of scenario where, where you know that a new leader, not really recognizing all the aspects that have to be considered was, was kind of moving in one direction and the, and the experience reeled them in and gave them a, a different way of looking at things. Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we recently invested in a, in, in a company that uh, was a first-time CEO. Uh, we really liked the CEO, super smart guy. He had built, he had built a great product. Um, and we're talking about this company has about 22 employees or so. And, um, and obviously, you know, this was his first, this was his first uh, company that he was building. And one of the first conversations that he had with us, he's saying he was very, you know, very transparent. He said, I know I'm young. I know that this is my first time, uh, you know, building a company. But once we actually receive the funding, we have X, Y, and Z, three or four different executives from large global enterprises that are currently advising me. And they've been able to help me tremendously. Not only that, they believe in my company so much that once we receive the funding, they are going to be coming on board as full-time employees. Mm. And these are people, this is a 28-year-old uh, CEO that has people who've been in the industry for 20, 30 years in the area that he, you know, that he was in. And that was a large confidence booster and understanding that number one is he's recognizing a couple of things that were concerns of ours, but he's been able to resolve them and he's been able to think creatively and saying, you know what? We need a very strong team. Not only do we need that, they want to come to us. And that was part of our diligence in, in actually uh, talking with them and communicating with them. And that reemphasized, you know, our confidence. And we're very, very excited about that. Yeah, that's huge. I love it. So let's stay in this for just a minute longer, if you don't mind, Leigh. But I, I didn't sort of um, prep you for this, but I'm just curious to know, what would you say? You talked about advisors. I'm going to change the language just a little bit to mentors. Because I'm a big believer that mentorship is a critical piece for leaders, especially new ones. And I benefited personally from it during my years in school leadership. 
What would you say are some of the characteristics, the qualities that really great mentors possess? Like who, who would you be looking for? What kind of person are you looking for if you need a mentor for yourself? Someone who thinks differently than I do. Someone who thinks the same way as I do, we're going to come out to the same place that I think I already know that I'm going to come out. But someone who thinks who challenges and thinks, you know, I don't want to say outside of the box. I don't want them to have a box. Mm-hmm. There should be no box there. And um, I think someone who challenges you understands as well where you are, um, you know, in, in your life journey. And it's able to share new, new, new views and perspectives. Um, you know, you may be familiar with like collective coaching, right? They, they want to be able to throw you into a place of different critical thinking that has benefited me. And, mm. and I know that I'm able to land up in places that I wasn't thinking about. And sometimes, you know, I may think that, okay, I've got three different options in X scenario. No, but there's actually another, another three to give me six, six different options. So mm. the mentor that's able to guide me into a place of, um, where I didn't know existed beforehand, that's incredibly uh, worthwhile. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's been, that's been incredible. I would like to go back to one thing that you hit on. I hit on the introduction. You kind of took us back there when I asked you that first question about the Arizona-Israel Technology Alliance. So, so tell me, what are the primary objectives of the alliance and, um, and, and what have been some of its successes? So, I mean, the, the, the premise of it is to be able to, I mean, generally Israeli companies that were coming to the United States were going to the Bay Area, you know, the East Coast and the, and, and the, and the West Coast. Um, and there was this whole um, region, middle America, um, and many, many, many different states um, that um, there was tremendous opportunity for Israeli companies. And, and what I found in Arizona was that there was a great thirst for innovation. There is a great thirst of innovation and how to be able to tap into that. That was on the Arizona side. Um, and I knew that Israel was an answer. On the Israeli side, their knowledge and the education about other markets were very, very limited. So um, educating the Israeli market, if you think about accelerators, incubators, venture capital groups, universities, um, that was a, a, a long-term objective that uh, took a number of years to be able to develop and cultivate. And very, you know, the nonprofit is very agnostic to stage of company, um, the industry, the vertical that they're in. As long as there could be a productive outcome, we're really agnostic to anything else. So we don't advise uh, schema bill testing companies out of Israel to come down to Tucson, Arizona. That's not going to be a good fit. If you think about aerospace and defense, cybersecurity, healthcare technologies, um, a number of areas of where there's significant concentration within the Arizona market, that was data that we needed to take to Israel and say, you know, when you're looking at uh, the U.S. market, these are data points that you should be looking at. So we've seen anyway, we recently facilitated a $6 million grant with Arizona State University and Ben Gurdon University on cybersecurity infrastructure for green tech or green technologies. Um, we've seen, you know, the group was founded in 2017. There were about 11 Israeli founded uh, companies in Arizona. Today, there's 35 Israeli companies uh, in Arizona. And, you know, a lot of business development. We've got companies that are not looking to open shop here, but they're looking for business opportunities. So we've seen anywhere from early stage to large corporates come um, and being able to 
um, be successful, you know, pick up a dozen clients and these are large, uh, large customers of theirs. So that was the objective. So are they, re are they relocating to Arizona or are they just opening up a quote unquote, a branch? Like how exact are, is it like, uh, the whole company picks up and, and finds greener pastures? What does that look like exactly? So it, it really depends. We have uh, a mix of both early stage companies, you know, once they're in the discussion in terms of, you know, companies want to be located where the customers are. That's def definitely at the beginning. So we've seen a, we've seen a good handful of very early stage um, Israeli companies. This is where their headquarters are. Then you've got more established ones. They already have a New York, New York office and they're looking for something more on the West Coast. So this is where they would have a second location or a third location. Got it. Okay. So, and I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, we talked about startup nation, scale up nation, all of that. What is it about Israel? What is it about Israeli culture mindset that lends itself so much to innovation, creativity, this desire to kind of like disrupt? So th this, I think, goes back, this is a historic thing that goes back to Israel's history, specifically with the French arms embargo when Israel didn't have any allies to be able to rely on uh, in terms of being able to equip their military for any uh, military altercations. Um, so Israel were in a position of, do they go and find another ally or do they do it in-house? And they chose the in-house to be able to build things in-house. Um, that was, you could say, I would say, there was definitely instances beforehand of where this, you can call it the DNA of out of the box and, and innovation were there. But I think this was the catalyst of being able, of Israelis saying that if we don't do things ourselves to be able to protect our country, then no one's going to do it for us and we can't be dependent. So the idea of independency, I think, and it, you know, really came about after the French armed embargo. And then that really, and you have the military mandate, you've got the mandatory military uh, service in Israel on, and a lot of that is cultivated in the, called the Shemona Matayim, the 8200 uh, unit in Israel of where, you know, today's war is happening on the cyber front and being able to think five steps ahead of the game is a necessity because if they're not gonna be doing that, it's your mother, your brother, your grandparents, your kids that are literally at stake. So the idea of you know, innovation is about solving problems and about being able to predict that and being able to solve them before they actually come about. So you have this you know, overall gamut of where um, you have a nation and a culture and a people that are you know, within their DNA, they have to do that. And I think it, it um, you know, progresses from that. Yeah, and it's born out of necessity, but look at what it's producing. It's unbelievable. If people realize just how much their day-to-day, -day, their cell phone function, so much of their communication, hardware, software, et cetera, is being affected positively uh, by Israeli technology, and that that's the outgrowth of people who are trying to, you know, not only provide income for themselves and have a career, but, but see problems in the world and see that if they don't take personal accountability and action towards solving them, there will be problems. Like you just said, um, who knows where we would be? So it, it's, you know, we don't want to be pushed. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get to here, Lab, is that we all want the comfortable life in a sense, right? We all want to be able to be out there on the beach and just enjoy the breeze and kind of like live relaxed. But the, the real growth of society, the real advancement of humanity, whether it's physical, material, spiritual, et cetera, has always been because we've been forced to grow. We've been forced to push ourselves beyond our comfort zones. We've been forced to address a problem that's in front of us, either real or imagined, 
and, and, and as a result, work towards a better outcome. Um, and I just think that that's, you know, it, it, even though it may be the, the, the reality of living in under tough circumstances, you know, we ultimately all benefit from it. So uh, I'm just curious to get your take on uh, what you see, let's say, for example, not even in Israel proper, but just people around you who as a result of challenges that they've had yourself, others, you know, has really transformed them. I mean, I think anyone who's in a, is living in a comfort uh, level is probably regressing in some areas. Um, and, you know, I don't believe there's a status quo uh, perpetually. Uh, if a person is either going to be growing in certain areas and, or they're going to be regressing very, you know, I think it's very difficult to say that person is going to be status quo for a long time. And some of that progression comes out of the discomfort and it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of commitment and it takes around, you know, building that community and the people and the network around you to be able to do that. So I agree 100% with that. Yeah. And I think that we have to reorient our minds because we just, everyone wants to quote, get there. You know, there's this idea, we're just going to get there. We'll retire. We'll retire early and all of that. I disagree. I believe very strongly that we should never fully want to get there in the sense that life is about continuous growth. We don't, we don't end that growth just because we no longer have to necessarily produce income for our families. You know, we are here in this world for a purpose and that purpose should be fulfilled to our very last day. So I'm a big believer person. I don't want to get on my soapbox too much over here, but that's that's kind of where I was going with it. So I appreciate your insight. I want to ask you one last question for this segment, which is the question I've been asking all of my guests recently. And that is, if if I just listened to you, Labe, you know, you came on, you've talked, you've sounded super intelligent, very successful, wonderful. Um, I would think that you've had this, you know, whether it's a hockey curve or just like this, this, this upward progression of growth with no setbacks, no challenges, no anything, and maybe you're just born for this. But we all know that challenges are part and parcel of, of, of life, and we only grow from those challenges and how we've, how we've overcome them. So uh, I'm curious to know, Leib, what was your biggest failure, your biggest challenge, and how did you overcome it? I have a file um, in, my, in, in my filing uh, case at home. It's probably this big with the failed ventures that I've tried to start. And then the things that I'm working on is probably about this big. So um, I, I, I've done some crazy initiatives that I thought were going to be, you know, the greatest things in the world, but they didn't work out. And uh, probably I, my guess is going to be between eight and 10 uh, that failed and have been successful. I would say there's going to be two or three. Um, and, you know, I think going on that journey and I knew, you know, most of the majority of startups fail, of ideas fail, everyone, everyone has great ideas. The question is, is there a product market fit for it? Are there people out there that want that? Um, is you know, is the, is the strategy, the right strategy, is the timing, the right timing? So everyone has great ideas, um, but being able to execute is a whole different, uh, whole different level. And each one of those things that didn't work out on my end were for very, very different reasons. But I understood from the very beginning, you just got to try. You got to keep on going. And as soon as you hit that brick wall, there's always going to be hurdles. But there's a time that you need to back off a little bit and say, you know what, is this the right decision? Or do you, I mean, I see many people say, no, this is a vision I've had for a long time. But when I'm looking at it, I don't believe it's, you know, the hardest thing to be able to tell someone is got to stop. But there's people that want to keep on going. And I've been on both sides of it. 
Um, so, you know, I, I would say throughout life, I've had all of those instances and they were continuous. And I put blood, sweat and tears into so many things that I believe were the greatest things. Mm. Um, you know, I'm really blessed and grateful where, you know, where I am now. But I believe all of those things were journeys of where I am now. Yeah. It was part of the journey and wouldn't have happened if not for them. And of course, we talked earlier about mentors and people we could turn to. So sometimes when your face is a little bit too close uh, to the glass, you know, you need somebody to pull you back and, and give you that perspective. So that was really, really great. Thank you, Leib. Let's now transition to the rapid fire. Uh, my first one is a quote that you live by or think about often. Be a mensch. Nice. Okay. A secret about Arizona that few people know. Um, we have probably more restaurants over here than most other Jewish communities in the United States. Okay. So if you're out there looking for kosher food, hang out in Arizona, you'll find plenty of options. And finally, a productivity tip lab that helps you to get more done. Delegate. Nice. Okay. So before we wrap up, let everybody in Lead to Succeed Nation, let, uh, sorry, let everybody know how they could reach out to you, how they can connect with you learn more about you and your work. Best way to connect with me personally is probably LinkedIn. Uh, that's Leib Bolel, L-E-I-B-B-O-L-E-L. Um, if you want to see what's going on in Greyhawk Capital, you can go to the Greyhawk Capital LinkedIn page, Arizona Israel Technology Alliance, go to the LinkedIn page as well. You're welcome to shoot me an email at L-B-O-L-E-L at greyhawkcapital.us. Okay, well, very brave of you to share that. Thank you, Leib. And finally, before we let you go, um, recording this on the eve of the Shabbat and also right before uh, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. So there's a lot of thoughts floating through my mind right now. Leave us with one final life lesson that could put a, a beautiful cap on this conversation. Well, we light the candles. We start with one and we go all the way up to eight. And we know that there's a, a question whether you start with eight and go down to 12. But really, you always got to start at the beginning and you continuously build one by one until you get to your goal. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Love it. Really, really great. I feel like we could have had this conversation fivefold, you know, so much to unpack, but we've, I've gained a tremendous amount. Thank you, Leif, for coming on the show. Thank, Thank you, Jason, you for making the connection. Um, it's just, I see all my podcasts are kind of like blending together in a great way here. Um, and uh, I look forward to getting to know you better and wishing you much continued success with all you do. Thank you so much, Natalia. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 